Welcome to Filling the Gap. We are a people of communities. Our churches, our countries, families, and our world. We are all a community. Loss is something we all go through in one way or another. The loss of a loved one, loss of a job, loss of a relationship, loss of identity, and even the loss of a community. Loss teaches us many things, and it especially puts our communities to the test when it happens. There is so much we can learn from those who have experienced great loss and have come out on the other side, even if that means leaving that particular community. There is so much we can learn from those who are on the outside. Meet John. For me, growing up as a kid was mostly defined by being a military brat, Air Force brat. You know, we were moving all the time. And because I was surrounded by other military families, I was surrounded by people who had completely different backgrounds, faith, traditions, religions than I did. Socially, for me growing up to survive, it was, you know, my life was about finding out what I had in common with everybody else. You know, so being an Adventist was a part of my own life, but it wasn't a it wasn't a barrier for me to connect with other people from different communities. From an early age, John sought community, even with those who were different from him. He decided to attend Upper Columbia Academy for high school to have a more permanent and consistent community. It was really, really formative in that time at UCA from the experience I had with the Bible teachers there and the chaplains. The church had been sort of like a part of my life that created some rhythm, but there is when it really got real for me in terms of how, like the implications of what belief meant. And I was watching that modeled through the characters of two of some of my, like my dearest mentors. They weren't so much focused on trying to give me answers, but rather like trying to help me ask the right questions. And in doing so, I feel like they equipped me with something that could help me through life in a way that wasn't so fragile. The foundation for that kind of a belief system, that kind of an approach to theology, that kind of an approach to love and to relating to other people. And I, I decided I wanted to, do, to be a pastor, I decided I wanted to, to be a part of that work. John chose a theology degree at Walla Walla University. He thrived and took leadership on campus with one of the church programs called The Awakening. It's a student-led, student-funded, student-driven, I mean, I would call it a movement. It was a place where we could have these sort of skeptical questions or these, these weird doubts, and then we can kind of go, okay, let's look under these rocks. Let's, let's turn these things over. Let's deal with the difficult stuff. Let's ask these questions. And it felt so authentic and so sincere during my last two years at the university, uh, I was leading it. That was my church. And it was there at the awakening that he met Melissa, who would become his wife. So before our last year there at Walla Walla, we had planned a wedding actually that summer and then postponed it in large part because Melissa's mom was uh, restarting cancer therapy treatments. And so she wanted to be there with family and, and 
felt like we needed to reschedule. And so we did. And we got into that decision. And then it was my idea. I said, well, wait a minute, we're rescheduling to accommodate kind of everybody else. Why wait? Keep the reception, you know, a year out like we planned, but let's elope. This high moment in his life was bookended by two life-changing events for John. You know, a few weeks before uh, we eloped, uh, my parents' uh, divorce paperwork had finalized. And so there was there was that element of kind of that the backdrop. But then um, the in the few weeks afterwards, uh, after we had eloped, um, my mother was killed in a car accident. That was earth shaking. I preached my own mother's memorial service. The next day, flew back to Walla Walla and was in classes on Monday while being in a long-distance marriage. <laughs> um, that was that was tough, but I also had a tremendous amount of support from the community that was there. I poured myself into the awakening into school and I survived because of the outpouring of the community that was around me. In his moment of loss, he was embraced and loved by the community around him. And he was able to heal and move on to his next journey as an associate youth pastor in Southern California. There, he saw so many good things at his church and had big dreams for it. There was so much sincerity with like getting as many people involved and having like a youth praise band. I was really like was really stoked about it. The families that were there were so pumped to like create opportunities for the kids there. People loved that community. I was sold on that. I loved the work, but what I, you know what I was doing had very little to do with in, with indoctrination. It was building relationships, you know, and I was in a, a, a building phase of ministry, you know, like I was having to get to know people, which takes a lot more time, is a lot slower. The things that were a big struggle, the struggles were political, how to support the leadership that was already there and figure out how to work with them and serve them. Like, hey, instead of trying to take over everything, like how do I empower the people that are already here? cast a vision that has us all working together and then I'll just get out of their way and let them do it because there were some motivated people and I loved that. So there were there were those struggles and I think those struggles in and of themselves weren't insurmountable. What happened in the backdrop for me had a lot to do with the way that this job, the environment and the sort of the darker, more kind of toxic elements, the politics really uh, invaded into my home life. Melissa was very frequently upset with the way that, or the, or the absence of support from my senior pastor. I think for me, what I know about, or at least the way that I've reflected on how this affected my marriage is that I think I let a lot of stuff come home with me that I either shouldn't have or should have had better, should have like drawn clearer lines and forced better boundaries for that. As things 
kind of deteriorated and she was, I could feel her kind of pulling away from, definitely from the church. And, and I understood that because I, because she was seeing how toxic it was, it was being on, on several levels, but it also kind of forced her to pull away from me as a, as a consequence of that. The thing for, uh, for Melissa as well was that, um, she had graduated with a degree in physics and was, you know, trying to decide on grad school or if she was going to take work somewhere in the area, looked at joining the Navy and six months deployment out of every year for the next six years. That was a daunting thing. In early June, she was up with her parents and gave me a call and told me that that she didn't think that she'd give 100% to a marriage and 100% to the pursuit of the career. And she asked me for a divorce. I was already spending so much energy navigating all this political kind of behind the scenes weirdness, all this micromanaging, all this other stuff. It was constantly being met with resistance. And I was finally at a point where I was maybe getting some momentum. And then that hit and I thought, man, I am gonna be hard pressed to have the energy and support here. I didn't think it was gonna be a healthy environment for me to, to go through a divorce in. I felt as though I wasn't gonna have the emotional availability and stability to, to do the work that I, way that I wanted to without running the risk of burning out. John resigned from church and took time to heal. Having now lost a parent and his marriage, he was experiencing life events that left him alienated from the community he knew. September of 2012, my bedside table, I'd laid my phone down next to an urn with my mother's ashes in it and a manila envelope with all my divorce papers. And it just seemed so bizarre because I, I like, and I was, I was 23. One of the strangest things about being 23 and having already lost a parent and having already been married and divorced was that on some level I was relating to people who were much, much older than me because the experiences that I have are not normal for that age. Nobody I knew my age was divorced already. <laughs> like, interestingly enough, you know, the, the mentors that I had in high school and in college, I kind of realized like as much as I have gone to them for guidance and there have been a lot of experiences they've been able to relate to me, they were all still married to their first wife. I realized really, really quickly that the church really doesn't know how to care for people going through a divorce. John was seeking support and understanding from a community, and he found it at a ski resort in Idaho, in a place that holds a lot of stigma, a bar. I picked up uh, a second job I was working as a as a doorman, as a bouncer at a bar downtown. But, you know, being around you know, bar culture, what was interesting about it was there were two different things. One, yes, it kind of lent itself to an introduction to maybe a little more chaotic behavior. But it also 
introduced me to a very interesting kind of church. I got to know the other misfits, the people who didn't belong anywhere else, other people who had dealt with hard stuff. It wasn't in the church where I started to hear people go, man, that sucks, I'm sorry, what do you need? It wasn't at the church, it wasn't, at a, it wasn't sitting in a pew where those conversations happened, where that empathy existed. It was sitting at a bar. I don't say that to make any kind of an endorsing statement about drinking alcohol. The issue for me there was this, like, this kind of this profound realization and upsetting realization that the church, when I needed it, found that its four walls contained bar tabs instead of pews. That the that the preachers weren't in suits; they were in ski jackets in a ski town on a bar stool next to me just being open and honest with not having the answers and being empathetic. But that's where I was able to sort of be given permission to not have the answers and to confess what was going on with me. And, and it was a little messy. I was, my life was a little messy. But in that environment, I was surrounded by people that that knew that it was a part of life to go through messiness and that it was okay for me to be messy. That's pretty incredible. John left Idaho with a new vision and a renewed spirit. After giving it much thought and time, John felt called to something that wasn't pastoral work, but that still involved working with people. So my calling had kind of shifted a little bit, or at least I had reached a roadblock. And I was thinking about, well, what is it I'm going to do? What is it I'm going to do? <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, and then nursing blipped my radar. Um, my mom had been a nurse. And uh, something had shifted there. And I packed up my stuff and drove up to Walla Walla and started down the path for down the path for nursing no regrets there I, I i love what i do absolutely love it i minister to people every day in the hospital everybody who passes through my care is in crisis at least to some degree daily at least people are experiencing a loss of control and interruption in routine they may be losing function, they may be financial duress, they may be going under a major body change or an injury that's going to take away a lot of function for a long time. They may be encountering their sense of mortality, they may be losing a loved one, they may be finding out a new diagnosis. And I walk into those rooms every day. I minister to people. John was invited to participate in a Sabbath school led by a mentor of his and felt that this was a way to re-engage with that community of faith again. The teacher had, you know, had given me the idea that, hey, you know, actually, after catching up with you and hearing your story over the last six years, I'd be, are, are, you, are you interested in, in perhaps teaching? I was so excited by that. I said, yes, like that would be, it was this acknowledgement that like I had a voice. It was this acknowledgement of like, yeah, like this person has something to offer and that, can be could maybe enrich and contribute. 
I had some major changes happen in my life, but my passion for for people, my, my fascination with the world of belief, my concepts of God, of higher power, of overarching redemptive narrative, the, the character of, of Jesus, like all that, like that, <laughs> that stuff to me has never stopped being compelling. My name came up during that theology faculty meeting and about me potentially teaching in a class and somebody there, you know, offered the well, well, wait a minute, like, isn't he a bartender? And so then I got an email like, oh, well, you know, it came, your name came up in faculty meeting and we hear, are you still working as a bartender? We need to discuss some of your, some lifestyle issues with you. Maybe we'll put, you know, kind of pumping the brakes on me leading out. I worked as a bartender through my second year of nursing school because the hours fit and the pay was good. I needed to afford my education. It's like I want to be involved in something that's voluntary where I don't have some kind of an agenda. And I was like, oh, well, hold on. If you're going to step into any kind of a position of leadership or influence or whatever else, it's like, oh, but you have to be blameless. Maybe more accurately, you have to be perceived as blameless. Nobody can know about your about what you struggle with. It's frustrating to be on the outside of the church, passionate about these things, willing to be involved, and I keep there like I just keep getting doors in the face. Do you feel like you've left the church on some level? I kind of you know I feel like the church left me. I feel like sometimes the church in general, has a little bit of an ego in the sense that like, it asks itself why young people are leaving with the sort of tone of like, what's wrong with these young people? Don't they know that the church is perfect? That they're trying to figure out what's wrong with us so they can fix us so that they'll come back to the thing that has nothing wrong with it. That sounds much more cynical than I mean it to be. I think that the church sometimes needs to maybe be a little more introspective. And don't get me wrong, this is hard to summarize, this is hard to illustrate, because I want people to understand that losing the Adventist identity, is losing, what that means for people is deeply traumatic. And what it means to be Adventist is not just a list of beliefs, it's a cultural identity, it's a community, that what it meant to be Adventist was to be passionate about Jesus. The identity and the character of Jesus superseded the identity of Adventism, that Adventism was a byproduct of a passionate obsession with the character of Jesus. And I feel like one could make the argument that in practical application, that has been lost sight of, that we have a higher value of holding on to the Adventist identity than we do for standing up for people and extending grace and defending the marginalized because you'd rather be defined by sticking to your guns than standing up for people. To, to, to leave the Adventist church is to leave a very, very wonderful, vibrant community and then be completely disoriented because your systems of support completely change. It's immensely disorienting to find yourself outside of it and to have it refuse to take you in 
or to have it reject you and then go, well, man, that was a big defining part of my life. My identity is wrapped up in that. That's tough. And it may be time to let the character of Jesus be re-experienced directly. Whatever flows out from that may reshape or renew the movement in a way that will shift its identity. That's the ship I'm getting on. There was Jesus, there was disciples, there were the Pharisees. Like The disciples ditched what they were doing, bad, worse, or otherwise. Fishermen, tax collectors, bartenders, maybe. <laughs> you know, they ditched what they were doing and came with. For me, through a lot of circumstances, it's, it's like, I, like the church didn't come with me <laughs> on my journey. I'd still gladly take it on board if there was a place for me to bring it along or a place for me to participate and endorse it. There's a time for me to get behind it and push and help it along its journey to try and get back on that boat. Cool. John's story of loss also shows how the community let him down, how we didn't embrace him at his time of need, or that sometimes church doesn't embrace broken people. It's not always easy to be vulnerable, to show each other our scars, to reveal the burdens we bear. But when we do, communities shouldn't reject us. They shouldn't put us on the sideline. This is the time for church to hold and embrace them. When my friends left the church, they told me that no one from that community had reached out. They felt as though they were never a part of that community. Why did the church act as if nothing had changed? For me, everything had changed. It hurt to see my church not do anything about it. Maybe they did, and I never knew, but my friends' comments still linger in my head. We are all seeking community. But we have to recognize that some communities we are a part of are broken because they're made up of broken people. And I hope that I can be a better member of my community, of my church, of this world. If I embrace those and love those within it, and especially those who are outside of it.